this new episode of Head and Heart, a podcast by Probe Ministries. I'll be your host today, Paul Brotherford. I'm a research associate with Probe Ministries. We're going to be talking about the grand narrative of the Bible, part two. And I'm in studio with my coworker and colleague of several years, Tom Davis. Tom, how's it going? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Good. I'm all right, man. Probe Ministries is a Christian worldview and apologetics organization that equips Christians to think biblically. If you are a believer in Jesus, then we want you to be able to think biblically about every aspect of your life. Check out our website, probe.org. There's lots and lots of resources there, especially about worldview in particular. But this is a topic today that is interesting because it doesn't get covered a lot. In fact, in the last episode, Tom, you and I talked about how a lot of Bible schools and churches and Sunday schools and pastors don't cover this in sermons. And it's something that I don't think I learned until really just if just a few years ago is what it feels like in my Christian walk. But it's really, really important. It's also something that um, to, to give you a summary listener, it's something that Tom effectively covered through the covenants of God and his people through about seven movements or seven covenants that God made agreements that made, God made with his people over time. Yes, yes. So, yeah, the Bible starts with creation. That's the first thing that happens. And in creation, he makes a, kind of a cosmic covenant where Adam and Eve are supposed to spread the Garden of Eden and take care of over all the earth. And they break that covenant, and you get the Adamic covenant, which is kind of a curse on Satan, but there's a promise. There's a promise in that covenant that the serpent's head will be crushed, and it will bruise the descendant of Eve's heel. That goes into you have the Noahic covenant after God floods the world, destroys humanity, except for one one family makes the Noahic covenant, which leads to the Abrahamic covenant, which brings about the nation of Israel, followed by the Mosaic covenant. And then within the Mosaic covenant, you get the covenant God makes with David that one of his descendants will sit on the throne. That's fulfilled by Jesus, but um, hinted at in the prophets and brought in fully by Jesus, is the new covenant that God would write his laws on our heart, and we would be his people. And then it ends with uh, Revelation 21 and 22, where creation is restored. Cool. Okay, well, Tom, thank you for summarizing that really quickly and succinctly. Listener, I recommend you go back and listen to episode one, part one of this, because we expound on that and explain what we mean by all those terms. And it's a we want you to be able to tell that story on your own. And so today isn't going to be so much focusing on that as much as Tom, we're going to, I have some questions for you about the significance of it and uh, how this relates to other worldview paradigms, other worldview ways of thinking about the scripture as a whole. And that's really what today's conversation is going to focus on some of the things that are significant and then other layers that Tom, you have told me many times when we've just been talking about this topic as a conversation, that there's a lot of ways that you could cover that story. There's a lot of themes that you could look at. So we're going to talk about all of that stuff today. That's that's the plan. So you've already set it up really well, Tom. So I guess my first question for you is, why does this matter? Why is this important? Why is it important for our listener to know the grand narrative? Yeah, well, um, part of it comes in, it's uh, part of a, a Christian vocation, so to speak, where what we need to do is part of our vocation is to understand the Bible, the word that God gave to us. And we know God, primary way we know God, or at least about God, is through studying the Bible. It generally tells us like half of its history. 
um, tells us the things that God has done. And um, we're commanded uh, specifically in 2 Timothy 2.15 to be diligent to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth. So if we're going to be teaching the Bible, um, we need to understand kind of how it fits together, not just the specific verses and passages. Absolutely. That's really good. And that's in John 4 as well. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. In John 4, um, where Jesus is talking at the woman of the well, and he tells you, uh, we will wor- worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Mm, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. If we're worshiping him in truth, we have to know what the truth is. Right. What is the true story yeah. of everything? Yep. Where it all comes from, where we're going. Yes. That That's good. And, and I, I'll, I'll add to that. If our job as believers is to be ambassadors for Christ, kind of like what you were talking about, if we, if our job is to be an intermediary, one, one thing we talked about in the last episode was how God wanted to create a kingdom of priests. If we're going to be a priest, if we're going to be an intermediary between another person and the Lord, then we're going to have to be able to speak on his behalf. We're going to have to be able to tell the story of their existence, of the world's existence and how everything came about to be. And so if you don't know the story of the Bible, then you're you're pretty much not able to do that. You yeah. might be able to tell a part of the story, and you would be right, but you don't know the whole story. And it's also, I'll, I'll add another thing here, I think it's not as satisfying. Even if you can tell part of the story, maybe you can explain, oh, I can explain sin, or you know, I can explain salvation, or I can share the gospel. That's good. That's necessary, I would say, I can argue even, for the formation of a mature believer. But there's more to it than that. And I think the significance for someone that we're talking with is the, uh, is the satisfaction. It's satisfying to our souls when we know that we're part of a bigger story. And what story is it that we're in? Yeah, it helps us kind of know how we should live. It's, in a sense, like, well, we used to teach this, but in a sense, it'd be like knowing the history of America. And then when you know that story of America, just knowing the story, you kind of absorb it in almost at an unconscious level, know how to act as an American. Um, Learning the Bible is the same kind of thing. It will kind of get into your mind and into your soul and you'll be acting it out without really even thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. We're talking about the grand narrative of the Bible today. This is part two with uh, between me, your host, Paul Rutherford, and Tom Davis on this episode of Head and Heart Podcast. And today we're not telling you the grand narrative of the Bible. If you want that, you go back and listen to part one. But we're uh, I'm asking Tom some follow-up questions on it because there's a lot of aspects to the conversation that we just didn't have time to get to in the last episode. So, um, Tom, if you'll indulge me, thank you for answering that first question. I think that's really important. Even though we didn't have a long conversation about that, that's really significant. That's why I wanted to start there. Mm-hmm. But the second question I want to ask you is, is about some of the other stuff. How does this grand narrative of the Bible inform a, a biblical worldview? When we talk about worldview, maybe that's where we need to start. Like, where does this intersect with biblical worldview? Yeah, so Christians that do uh, worldview and they look at uh, the worldview aspects, like most of the time you'll get worldview as a set of questions. And like ourselves included questions. here, right? Like, yes, probe, yes. Ministry. Even here. This, this is kind of what we do around yeah. here. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. But they also, the you know, the probe worldview, Christian worldview people also acknowledge that there is a, a narrative, a story to the Bible. And... Usually the way they tell that story is they'll they'll use three terms, creation, fall, redemption. Um, Some of them will use four terms where where they'll say creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Mm, Okay. And they're basically talking about the same thing. They're just one's making a distinction between restoration and redemption where the other one isn't. 
But um, that story kind of stands along and works well with the covenants. They both start with creation. The, the, the Christian story begins with God creating the heavens and the earth. And then they move in, and what the covenants are doing, the purpose of the covenants, is to restore the relationship between man and God. Um, that's the ultimate purpose of that. And they're restoring that because you do have a fall. Humanity falls out of relationship because they sinned against God. And so then the Bible ends with restoration. In Revelation 21 and 22, the earth is remade, recreated, and instead of a garden, you have a celestial city. Hmm. Cool. So, Tom, again, this is... This is a podcast that you and I are doing really because we've had a lot of conversations yeah. about this kind of thing. And it's, it's uh, well, you know, it's fun for us, fun for me. But one of the things that we talk about when we talk about this is how biblical worldview, understanding it as creation, fall, redemption, can add restoration. That's fine. Three, four parts. And the narrative that you just unfolded for us here at the beginning of, the, of this episode and then expounded in the previous episode is to do philosophy, which is what I do, because that's my training. I consider myself a philosopher. When I look at those two different schemas, those two different ways of what's sometimes called a biblical worldview, one is, in fact, a narrative, as it says, the grand narrative of the Bible. It's a story. Yeah. The other one is an analysis. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's an analysis. Yeah. That pulls out the ideas and puts them into categories and says the beginning was creation. The next part is the fall. The next part is how it gets redeemed and or restored. Yes. It's pulling out the ideas. It's it's more of a structure than a story. Because even to speak specifically about narrative, narrative is, story is a very specific thing, especially when you talk with novelists, writers, short story writers, screenwriters. Story is a, is a very technical thing that involves character, setting, motivation, context, conflict, resolution, redemption. It includes several things that really have to be there in order to be called a story, not just some abstraction or expression. Yeah, and that story, the Bible is fits together like a story. It, it does have character developments. It has um, plots and subplots. And in a sense, can even kind of has breaks where you get some other things that aren't story thrown in, but those other parts are contextualized by the story itself. So if you want to if you want to understand Paul's letters, you have to understand Acts. It helps to understand Acts, at least. And it winds up, for us, it winds up informing the way we live, the way we think. Yeah, you know, and then the other part of that is to go on with what I was talking about a second ago, how creation, fall, redemption is really more of a philosophical structure of how the ideas flow together. Just to be clear, that's not a criticism of thinking about worldview that way. That, I mean, that's how I cut my teeth on worldview. That's the way yeah. I thought about it. And it's super helpful. Something that we continue to teach to this day at Probe. I think that's definitely part of it. And the other, the, the next thing I want to say about that is just that that structure is intentionally and inherently analytic, in part because it can fit on any worldview. Yes. Which is part of what it's supposed to do. Yeah. Not just a biblical worldview understanding every worldview has some explanation for the creation has some explanation for the fall and has some explanation for redemption. Is there, is there hope? Do things get better? Is there hope for the future? There's, there's some, every, every worldview is going to answer those three questions. And so just to add a distinction, I guess, is what I'm trying to say here is that understanding worldview, biblical worldview in that sense is in part a way of understanding all worldviews, because then if you add, if you answer those 
each of those three parts or fill in that three-part schema according to what the Bible tells you, then you do get a biblical worldview. Yeah. But you could also fill it in according to what the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita uh, reveal. And that would give you a Hindu worldview or a pantheist worldview or whatever whatever label you want to call that. Every possible worldview is going to answer those those three questions, those three types of issues. Yeah. Yeah. So that comes in and yeah, it does create different worldviews um, that really come in different shapes um, because certain things like the, the Hindu worldview and Buddhist worldview, for example, tend to tell that story kind of in a circle and you'll reach a point and it'll yes. kind of start over again. The Christian worldview is linear. It has a beginning, it has a middle, and it has an end. Yeah, totally. They're and very so, different. When you yeah. lay that schema down on different different religions, different worldviews, the answers yeah. do come up very different. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm your host today, Paul Rutherford. This is a new podcast called Head and Heart by Probe Ministries. I'm talking with Tom Davis about the grand narrative of the Bible. And uh, there were a lot of themes and comments and things that we wanted to add to that conversation that we couldn't fit into the previous episode. So if you haven't heard episode one, go back and listen to it. Or you can check out more resources like that at our website, probe.org. And uh, another question that I have for you, Tom, are the themes with respect to this grand narrative? Are there other themes that you wish you could have woven into it if I hadn't restricted you yeah. by doing it in 20 minutes? Yeah, first I would kind of to start off, I really like bringing that worldview analysis, creation, fall, redemption in in a way to kind of better understand the flow of the covenants. But there's there's different things you can you can look at. One of the interesting things, so things that I find most interesting, is a kind of holy space or temple. Um, there's some debate as to whether you should, you know, use temple or holy space. But most biblical scholars admit that there's a connection there. Well, hold on before we move further because this yeah. sounds fascinating. Can you define that term? What is holy space? What do you mean by that when you say that? Yeah. So holy space is kind of a space where God and man come to commune. Um, so most religions and most worldviews have an idea of holy space. Um, you'll have temples. The Buddhists have temples. The Hindus have temples. The Muslims have mosques, which fulfill the same purpose as a temple. It's a place that's set apart for man to go and commune with God. So, yeah, that's where where you get the theme of temple. Okay, so what I hear you saying there is this idea of holy space is the connection point between the divine and the human. Yes. That we have world's religious systems, or in this case, we're talking about the Bible in particular, but we have this conception of the divine or of God, and we know that we exist. And so, and we understand the divine as someone, someone or something other, apart, different from us and ourselves. And so where the space that those two interact, intersect, come together. You use the word commune, which I like, and I appreciate that. Where those two come together, that, that's what you mean by holy space. And we, the, the vernacular would be like a temple or a church or yeah. something like that. Yes, exactly right. And what you find in the Bible is as you move along, and it kind of stands alongside the covenants, as you, you find that there's um, a change in holy space put it that way as you that go along sounds the fun. Story. What's the change? What happens? Starts off where God creates the heavens and the earth. And in earth, God makes a garden. And he puts in the garden Adam and Eve. You have seven days of creation. And these seven days of creation, um, when you were inaugurating a new temple in the ancient Middle East, um, and Near East, you would take like a seven-day ceremony 
to kind of cleanse and purify the temple so that the the god could come and live there. Hmm. Now the difference is in the Bible the god of the Bible inhabits all of creation. Um so he's not restricted to one spot. But he sets aside the garden so that and Adam and Eve kind of come in and are kind of like a priest and priestess in the garden. And he gives them there to tend the garden, take care of the garden like a priest would take care of a temple or a pastor. One of the things that the pastor does is make sure that the church is taken care of. And so they're set up like that. So the whole thing starts in the garden. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so the first thing I hear you saying here about holy space, the, the, the intersection between the divine and human, is that under the in the beginning, in Genesis 1, when God creates everything, there's a sense in which everything effectively is, is divine, because it's all divinely made, it's all divinely inspired. But there's a special place, Eden, which is designated for man and God to live. Or I guess the scripture, the text says that God made it, and then yeah. God put him there in it. And, and so there was a sense in which God intended for man to have, to be in the garden. He commands him till and to keep it and cultivate this and all that. Yeah. So, even. so the first holy space was Eden. Yeah. In yeah. that sense. That's interesting. Yeah. And it even talks about God walked with man in the cool of the day. He would come down in the cool of the day and walk with Adam and Eve through the garden. So yeah, it's it's this place where they they have relationship. And of course as you move on, that relationship gets broken when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Um that relationship gets broken, there is no holy space. The relationship between man and God is severed because God moves out. Yeah. God kicks, kicks them out, out right. as well. Yeah. Cuz it's broken. There's no no connection between man and God. As you move along in the narrative, you get into Exodus, and one of the things that happens in the book of Exodus is they build the tabernacle. And the tabernacle's kind of interesting because it has carvings of trees in the entrance. It has um, like a cherub in the entrance, and the cherub is, you know, symbolizing a, a guarding of the entrance. When Adam and Eve got kicked out of the garden, God put a cherub with a sword, a flaming sword, at the entrance to the garden. Hmm. Um, you have a cherub at the entrance of the tabernacle. You also have... There's a theme there. Yeah. An intentional theme on God's part. Yes. Clearly. Yeah. And you have a... Uh, you have the, the menorah, the candlestick, with, uh, you know, seven candles. And uh, that stick, um, a lot of scholars would say that represents the tree of life. And so you have these, these certain symbolic things there. The other thing that's added that wasn't in uh, the garden is you have the Ark of the Covenant. And so the Ark of the Covenant is made, and you have these two kind of angels, and their wings come in, and they touch over the Ark. And so that creates an image of like a throne. That's like the seat of the throne, and the Ark is a footstool. Now, the footstool of God's throne is the Ark of the Covenant. That's fascinating. I never heard of that. Yeah, and they take it into the temple, or in not the temple yet, but the tabernacle. And within the tabernacle, there's part of the tabernacle that is sealed off. Only Aaron is allowed in there. The high priest. Yeah, yeah, only the high priest is allowed in there. Um, not even the prophets go in. And so the high priest is only allowed to go in there, and only at certain times... Um, granted, with the tabernacle, you have the taking it down, moving it, and setting it up. 
And when you go in into the holiest of holies, you enter into the presence of God. They talk about, you know, the the cloud at the entrance of the tabernacle and, you know, different things like that. So you had to be, you, you, you know, you had to come in and do certain purification rituals of washing and stuff to, to represent cleanliness as you go into this holy space. And so the tabernacle reestablishes a connection between God and man for relationship. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so I, I hear you saying that in the beginning God created a garden, and that was the holy space, when we think about that in terms of where man and God come together. Yes. And then man broke the relationship, and God formed a couple other covenants, which we've talked about already, and that changes as we look into, I guess this would be the Mosaic Covenant at this point, when God commands his people to build a tabernacle. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere, maybe the Abrahamic. I might be getting ahead of myself there. No. But it's yeah. but sometime forward in the story, the way in which God interacts with man has changed, and now it's a tabernacle. Yes. And now it's more involved, it's bigger, it's very specific in all the ways that you just talked about, in terms of there is a very holy place, the Holy of Holies, and there's lots of requirements around what that looks like to interact with the Lord in that space. Yes. Yeah. And you can think of it, one way to think of the tabernacle, and later on the temple is if you've seen the movie Thor. Yeah, I've seen Thor. I love I love Marvel movies. Yeah, and so when they when they move from when Thor goes to move from Asgard to Earth, I forget the other character's name, but you have that one guy that's kind of a gatekeeper. Heimdall. Yeah, Heimdall. And he will kind of open up that passageway. The Bifrost. Yeah, the Bifrost. I'll help you out with all the Marvel terms. Yeah. <laughs> he opens up the Bifrost and Thor can travel to Earth. Yeah. Like, I remember instantly. That. And so in a sense the tabernacle becomes that kind of thing between heaven and earth. The Bifrost. Yeah. That is a fascinating analogy there, Tom. (laughs) I like that. The Bifrost from the Marvel movies Thor is an example of temple. Yeah. The connection between the divine and the human. Yes. I've never thought about it that way. Thank you for blowing my mind, Tom. (laughs) Anytime. (laughs) That's awesome. Are there any other movements? And when you think about holy space, like as in the context of the grand narrative of the Bible? Yes, after David, David wants to build a temple. He wants to build to build a house for God. God tells him no that his son will do it. So they build the temple. The interesting thing about this, when they build the temple, they basically build the temple around the tabernacle. And so now you have the ark of the covenant and the holiest of holies inside the temple. And again, the priest, the high priest is only allowed to go in there once a year. And there are certain rituals, and that's on the Day of Atonement. And you still have the throne, and so now the temple now becomes that bifrost between between heaven and earth. And so it kind of takes that place, but then as you go on, the people of Israel are unfaithful. They basically um, don't keep their covenant. That gets cut off. And then you have another movement. Uh, the next movement is is Jesus coming down. Now, Jesus is the connection between earth and heaven. Yeah, he is the God-man. Yeah, he's, he's the God-man. But when he ascends to heaven, something else happens. The Holy Spirit comes down. Descends. Descends yeah. and inhabits God's people. So yeah. we, as Christians, are now inhabited by the Holy Spirit. We are now the Bifrost. Dude. Yeah. And then, of course, that ends with the restoration where Jesus is on his throne in the New Jerusalem. And that's where the whole thing ends. That's awesome. So to summarize that last part that I heard, when God moved 
moved into the temple, I'm using air quotes, so he didn't actually physically move into the temple, but when he moved the holy space, is the term we're using, from the tabernacle, the temporary temple, into the permanent temple, and those changed over time, construction and wars and this and that. And then the next move from the temple was into Jesus, who was himself the God-man, the connection between the divine and the human. Yeah. And then the last movement was shortly after Jesus was the Holy Spirit taking up residence within his people. Yes. So then again, God and man are united within the body, within the spirit, the spirit and the body and the flesh are, are reconnected again. And then we see the restoration in the sense of the whole created order being reunited with its creator in the end. Revelation is a really beautiful picture of that where God is in his essence and we are with him and we are known as he knows us. Yes. And every everything has been recreated back to the way he wanted it from the beginning. Yep. So with some slight improvements, because you talk about it as a celestial city, and that's an interesting trend that, that I find fascinating, that he starts with a garden, and the story ends with a city. Yeah. There's this idea of progress, if you will, or, or order, moving from a type of order to an even higher level order. Yes. That yeah. he inaugurated, that he, that he created, he established, and we get to be part of. Yes. Humankind, the human aspect to his story the divine story the grand narrative of the bible yeah See what i did there yeah i saw that <laughs> uh this is awesome hey we're we're about at time i think that was my last question for you is there anything else you want to add here or something you think would bless our listener yeah there there's an interesting thing with holy time if i just take about five minutes to go through that um that comes in and holy time starts with creation week and holy time doesn't have to be literal days, so you can still have that open and still have this theme. But you have um, a seven-day period. God creates for six days, rests on the seventh. Then when he comes in with the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant kind of reestablishes this pattern where they are to work six days and they are to rest on the seventh. Yeah, and it formalizes that seven-day yeah. um, rhythm. Yeah, and then they apply it to years, where you are to work your fields— for six years, and on the seventh year, you rest. You don't go out and plant and harvest uh, because you have been storing up for six years. And during that seventh year, there are other things that happen as well. So all debts are forgiven on the seventh year, um, which is kind of an interesting picture of a restoration. So the people that are in debt that, and you know, in the Old Testament, one of the ways that you could deal with debt would be to kind of sell yourself as an indentured servant. Yes. And so if you had done that, sold yourself as an indentured servant after the seventh year, you get your freedom back. And then... Interesting. Then you would have, after seven Sabbath years, so you're looking at 49 years, you would have a Jubilee year, a 50th year. And another picture of restoration in that is sometimes families had to sell off their land um, in order to, you know, pay taxes, pay bills. When they did that, in the ancient world, land and livestock was wealth. And it's hard to have livestock if you don't have land. So if you sell your land, you're kind of stuck in perpetual poverty. At the end of that 50 years, that 50th year... All land that has been bought and sold returns to the original family so that the original family will still have means to feed their family and build their family and continue 
the generations of God's people. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Continuing their legacy. Yeah. Because if that family has no means to take care of themselves, then it's an entire family, a bloodline that's lost. Yes. But if they can, if their land can be restored to them, then it increases their likelihood that a whole family line is, isn't lost, but they're restored. Yeah, and in the modern world, we don't think about... Um, you know, bloodlines and land very much. No, not so much. But in the ancient world, that was that was one of the most important things to deal with in the ancient world. Absolutely. Interesting. Well, that gives me thought to all kinds of connections that I'm making, Tom, in terms of cycles of seven. Because as I understand it, the next movement in the story, I think I'm getting this right, when you're talking about God's people living in the land, or maybe I'm backing it up a little, maybe it's the same time. Um, I know uh, the book of Judges tends to fit into seven cycles of downward unfaithfulness. Yes. As I understand it. Yeah. So you could almost look at that, that whole period in the history of God's people as fitting into a rubric of that time. Yeah. There that, seems to be an interesting theme here with seven. Yeah. That God seems to like that number. Yeah. That seven theme seems to keep coming around again. Yeah. He, he chose that for the number of days to create. And yeah. he just, he went with it. He, yeah. He kept going. <laughs> he kept going in his sovereignty. That was his choice. Yeah. That's interesting because that also works with the, uh, the captivity. Yes. Because the number of, they were, Israel was in captivity for one year corresponding to seven years that they were unfaithful. Yeah. And so, yeah, the captivity is in a sense, all the Jubilees, at least this is debated among Bible scholars, but um, some Bible scholars would say that the captivity is all the jubilees that the land was supposed to have were made up in the Babylonian captivity. Fascinating. And yet another example, potentially, if that's how we understand it, in terms of how long did the captivity last and how long was their unfaithfulness and when do you start it and when do you date all that stuff? Yeah. But if that were the case, then that would be an interesting example of the Lord fulfilling his promise, fulfilling his covenant, as we've been talking about in this grand narrative, and um, making do, making it up. If Israel isn't going to do it, God says, all right, well, I'm going to do it for you. Yeah. Which is, again, consistent with how he's fulfilled every other covenant. Yeah. Well, mankind screwed it up. I'll do it. I'm sorry. That's... <laughs> <laughs> the the tone with which I'm communicating that is probably not the gracious, loving, compassionate tone that our father has for us. <laughs> but I sympathize with him if he gets frustrated when we perpetually miss it and blow it. Yeah. And so, but he does consistently come in and, and rescue and does consistently come in and, and make up where we've fallen short. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You see that throughout the Bible. And I think if uh, you sit and examine your life, you'll find examples of that in your own life. I know I've found it in mine. Yeah. Well, Tom, thanks for having this conversation with me today, uh, commenting, analyzing further on the grand narrative of the Bible, expounding on themes that we couldn't have done, didn't have time for in the previous episode, like space and holy time and biblical worldview and how do these, how do these ideas interact with each other? Listener, I hope this has been helpful for you to be able to communicate a grand narrative of the Bible to someone who doesn't know it. I hope it's helped you make connections to stories that you already knew. Maybe this is brand new stuff for you. Maybe you're just learning and uh, you're growing in your own skill set, which is great. And we want that for you too. If you're interested in this, please check out our website, probe.org. If you didn't listen to episode one, go back and listen to that one where Tom just lays out for us what that grand narrative of the Bible is. Tom, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for being with me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, and the listener, we will see you next time.